Hi, this is Charlene, your host for Soul Sciences, the place where your inner experience meets outer exploration, or your inner exploration meets outer experience. Thanks for joining today's program of Soul Sciences. Listeners, I'm here today with Melissa Birch, who has written an amazing book called My Journey Through War and Peace, Explorations of a Young Filmmaker, Feminist, and Spiritual Seeker. It's a book that I truly enjoyed, so I'm really looking forward to welcoming you, Melissa, to the program off the top, and thank you for agreeing to do the interview. I am really excited to be here, Charlene, so great talk to you. Yes, I'm, I'm so thrilled to read a book by a young woman yourself who at 21 years old went into the Afghanistan war. I can't tell you where my head goes there because it just collapses. <laughs> so I'm going to use some questions for you right away as we spoke of a bit earlier. You are published now on Mosaic Press. Would you describe a little bit about your journey about how you got with a Canadian publisher being that you're from the U.S.? Well, I think it all began with the idea of wanting a publisher. So I got a literary agent who was wonderful. I really loved working with her and did the sort of formal shopping around to the different publishing houses. And we really didn't get much response, not negative, but, you know, not positive either. So we were kind of in this holding pattern for a year. And I knew about Mosaic Press. Um, my dad is friends with Howard, who's there as uh, the owner. So he had read my book in a very kind of early draft and had offered to publish it. So I guess that impatient part of myself, after a year, said, okay, let's go for it. So that's really how we, we started that uh, whole next step of, of getting the book out into the world. Well, I'm delighted that the Canadians had the perspicacity to see the power of this journey in this book because it's so unusual. I would like you, if you would please, to describe a question or answer a question that I have regarding your sensory data coming out of a war zone. Were, were your senses completely alive? Were they enlivened by being around all that threat and the possibility of death? Some people I've read talk about being close to danger, making their senses come alive. Other people say it closes their senses down. What was your experience? Wow, it's an interesting question because I think the adrenaline definitely opened me up. And one of the, the key moments for me in the journey and also going back and looking at it, because I'm in my 50s, and so looking at that 20-year-old in her 20s, and I saw that moment where it did open me up. Like I went in there with a lot of anxiety and fear, which is kind of counterintuitive because it's like, how did somebody go, you know, to, and was so courageous or brave, but actually didn't feel that deep inside me. I grew up with an alcoholic mom who raged a lot. So I had that kind of angst as a 20 year old. And so I went into a very dangerous place. And I think what happened 
Well, I know what happened in that moment of being in extreme danger was an opening of the senses, as you described, to the point that I started to trust that intuitive side and started to be able to recognize it so that when later in life something happened that didn't make sense or just was kind of out of the blue, I knew how to trust it because I had really great feedback, almost like a message of, okay, this you can trust because it was one of the significant things that I did describe in the book that happened to me where I almost died. And because of that message coming through, I was able to do something very crazy, which was to shove these mujahideen, you know, in mid prayer, which is a horribly non PC thing to do. Yet there was something calling me to do that that didn't make sense until much later where I understood that if we hadn't moved and really gotten back into the trucks and gotten back on the road, the another group of Mujahideen had mined from that point on. So we would have blown up if I hadn't acted on something so absurd as I wanted to get home for Christmas, which obviously made no sense to the Mujahideen who were traveling and taking care of me and protecting me and getting me out of the country. But I just, I acted from that kind of crazy place. And so I, it went into a very physical sensation experience. And then in the, you know, other times in my life where I had that kind of message, I knew how to trust it. And so I think it, it definitely uh, heightened that kind of awareness for me. That's a very powerful and beautiful passage in the book, as well as in your explanation now. It brings to mind a phrase from Buddhism, crazy wisdom. Right. I think your example there is an example of crazy wisdom. Would you allow me to read a very short section of your book? I'd like our readers to have a sense of how you use language. Wonderful. This is from page 34. We entered through a green carved door and into a vast courtyard where the last surviving fruits of fall, pomegranates and apples, hung on the trees, sorry, hung on the branches of trees like Christmas ornaments. A smiling boy about eight dressed in a pressed tunic dropped the baby goat he was holding, ran up to Doc and wrapped his thin arms around Doc's thighs. Doc took the boy's embroidered cap from his head and rubbed his fluffy hair. The boy giggled. Doc slapped his narrow back and they both laughed. In the corner of the garden courtyard, three women with colorful scarves draped around their heads, gold jewelry hanging from their ears and bangles on their arms, squatted, scooping Afghani goat stew from wide open black metal pots. And then again on page 35. Doc cut open a dark red fruit with ruby seeds and handed me a few seeds to chew on. The tart nectar touched my tongue and bubbles erupted in my mouth, better than any French champagne. Afterwards, the pomegranate became a fruit that I would forever crave. I just love that. The pomegranate oh, became a you. fruit that I would forever crave. That sense of how intense your senses were wrapped up in the one seed of the pomegranate. Beautifully done. Now... Is it fair to say that your skirting on the edges of death plunged you into examining more deeply the origins of your family and your early life with its traumata? 
Yes. I, I mean, I, again, I think it's funny going on this tour. I'm on a 10,000-mile tour in 16 cities at bookstores. And, and I'm a homeopath as well uh, in training. And I was a teacher, and I've written books about homeopathy. And somebody coined this this journey into Afghanistan like that, in this near death, as almost a, a homeopathic journey. Because in homeopathy, we have this this understanding of like cures like and I thought oh as a homeopath I hadn't even connected the dots in the way that this audience person had done and in a way going into a danger zone with that kind of anxiety was a healing journey very deeply and one of the things that's really fascinating about writing a memoir and looking back is connecting those dots and those themes of these were great stories until I started to write the memoir and understood what was kind of the etiology, if we're going to use sort of more homeopathic or, or medical ideas. There was that point where, yes, that was a, a healing experience and, and very counterintuitive in a way, right? Yes, but again, the counterintuitive of something that actually functioned to align your energies in a more wholesome pattern. Right. And I think also a lot of times, the other thing that I'm talking about a lot on this journey, on the book tour, is the heroine's journey yes. and how that's different from the hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Because Joseph Campbell, which I think it's not a gender thing, I think women take hero's journeys and men take heroine's journeys. It's not so much about that. But I think what happens in the hero's journey is that we have this idea that it's almost linear. You you start with a goal in mind or some kind of vision and you have obstacles, but there's this forward experience. And yet in the heroine's journey, it's almost like you have to go through the difficulty or the really tough, um, almost broken kind of stage in oneself is the initiating factor to go into the heroine's journey. And so that's a very different place to begin that kind of inward exploration. It's, it's often from a weaker place or a collapsed state. I, that's how I understand it. And I think a lot of women and men have said that, that that's when they really went deep into their journeys. This is the wound that unites you ultimately with God, yes? Or the higher energies right, right. or that's, whatever. Yeah, the, the idea that wherever we've been wounded, that's our path toward the higher energy. And that is true, I, I agree with you, male or female. Now, men seem to have a, a two-pronged approach to life, finding a partner and finding status in the culture. Traditionally, women had a one-pronged approach, which was finding the right partner or the eros through the children and so forth. But now we're more and more like the men in finding a way into the status of our worlds. And your world was also very, very much aligned. So I think that what the outcome of that is that we are sharing more of what that journey is, but certainly it is a journey into the depth, into the darkness, and you certainly did that. And I thought also from your uh, beautiful book, there was this extraordinary relationship between your mother and Sylvia Plath. Right. They were roommates in Smith College. So my mother met Sylvia after the first, well, that major suicide attempt that she talks about or wrote about quite a bit. And so they were together at Smith and they continued a really deep friendship. My mom ended up going to London 
well, first she went to Oxford and then to London, and Sylvia also ended up, uh, everybody sort of knows who knows follows any of Sylvia Plath's life, is that she ended up in London and marrying a Brit and a poet. Ted Hughes, yeah. Ted Hughes, that's right. correct. Yeah, but that was quite a strong uh, relationship, it seemed, for your mother. They, I s seem to remember there were repetitive stories about Sylvia Plath from the time you were quite young. Yes, and they both shared that their fathers died when they were seven years old. So yes. I think that was a very intense kind of bonding of, of being fatherless, in a way, for most of their childhood. Yes. Now, you have answered this in a kind of way, but I want to pose the question uh, a little more directly. Why going to a war zone at 21 was the best thing that ever happened to me? <laughs> Would you please explain that statement to our listeners? Right. I mean, I think also I came into the feminist era. Well, my mother was obviously, there had been previous generations. But my generation, really, I feel, went in with the idea that we could just do anything the guys could do, right? I mean, we were just as capable. I think I was pushing that to the extreme of going into a war zone, a very sort of male kind of energy and and took that kind of resourcefulness inside of me. So I think there was, I mean, threading back to that hero's journey a bit of like, okay, let me go and see how far can I take this to the edge. So it built up a muscle. I mean, that was, I went in twice and fairly extended journeys in, in Afghanistan. So I think from that perspective of really looking at, okay, what am I capable of? It gave me that kind of courage and self-confidence. And then, like I had spoken about before, I also coming in as a very kind of wounded from my childhood and, and really processing that kind of anxiety and fear in a heightened way also resolved a lot of issues. And then I think it really was a opening into a very deep spiritual connection that was very, as we talked about before too, this very direct sensory corporal kind of connection to a higher force, a divine source. And, and so it did all of that and, and many other things too. I mean, just the idea of travel and adventure and being exposed to cultures that are so different than how I grew up and, and, and recognizing we're not all the same and yet we're all the same too. We're all the same and we're all different. Absolutely. There's no question. And that sounds like an incredibly intense way to get that lesson to come right on home, right through your senses. Now you were interested in being a filmmaker. Would you Talk a little bit about that and your education around that and some of your struggle around that. Yeah, I always thought I would be a filmmaker. So it's interesting that now I look back and it seems like a different stage of my life or almost a different person. But I have the amazing fortune of going to a high school that had a film department at a time when it was still film, you know, like, you know, it was Super 8 film and, and the editing was this tiny, thin strip and <laughs> a little guillotine and glue. <laughs> so, very tactile kind of experience of working with images and moving images. And, and I was very passionate about it and went to film school in London. And so it was a very hands-on kind of program where we actually got to film and, and write our own scripts and put our own crews together and make films. So I had that opportunity and I really went into Afghanistan much more like a filmmaker. And in the beginning, I thought I would be a camera person, although my the producer journalist left. So I ended up having to do everything. 
But I think I was very, very attracted to the idea of telling stories through images, through moving images. And, and so that's how I got into that. And I kept doing it. I've made a national public television series about women's lives. And, and I still, even my son's kind of a natural, he's on this trip and I'm like, oh, oh yeah, you have that part of both, you know, my kind of passion for it. And my husband also was a filmmaker. We met in film school in London. So our son seems to have that little bug in him too. Melissa, I'm curious always about how people put themselves back together after lots of pressures strain, trauma, traumata. It's one of the areas that I have the most interest in. Would you describe a little bit, if you if you would please, some of how you put those pieces back together once you came back to America after the second trip? And if I understand it, you didn't make any more long journeys of that kind of dangerous nature after that. That's right. I, I think what happened was I met a spiritual teacher. So that was my opportunity to really take all that kind of outward living in, you know, circumstances that really pushed me to the edge. And also, like I had spoken about before, growing up in a very kind of traumatic, charged family life. And and my teacher came from the Gurdjieff tradition, which is also a very sensory way, methodology. Gurdjieff talked about the work and they had many exercises and it was a very direct kind of practice of following one's sensation. And there are other traditions too that, that use very similar techniques or methods or understandings. And it came at a time when I really needed that. Like I needed to understand what I was full of emotions. I still am a very emotional person. Anybody knows me is like, yes, Melissa is very emotional <laughs> at the same time. I have this, this observer in me and that really became conscious and became part of who I am thanks to my, my spiritual teacher and being able to understand and learn and practice observing my sensations in my body. And I, I was able to put it to the test. My mother died young at 57 and I was in my late 20s. And I remember so clearly by that time I had been practicing several years. And uh, for anyone who's lost a mom or their mother, they it is a very intense uh, time of grieving. And so that observer was there as those waves of emotions came and, and went through that kind of cycle. So... I really think that was a, a critical way of, of synthesizing and again healing, but also kind of upleveling my my way of being in the world. That's a really incredibly powerful and important thing to add to your journey. That how incredibly joined the physical has been with the spiritual that you pushed yourself to the limits physically on more than one occasion. And we're unafraid or we're, we're driven to take extraordinary risks. And then how that charged and supercharged your own intuition, your own what we've called in this program, the crazy wisdom. And then how that also allowed you to begin to put together the sensory data with the watcher or the observer. The part of us that sees it happening and can sit quietly by it like it's a stream going through and not interfere you know, emotion, as I understand it, as a as an emotional guide, is a wave, and it must be allowed to finish its energy expression. 
and too often we get stopped. And when we get stopped, that's when we get in a little bit of trouble. So unstopping that is learning how to let the emotions flow. And at the same time, as you say, have that observer, which is, of course, also the part that gets strengthened through meditation practice, through yoga, through many of the incredible uh, experiences that people are taking upon themselves now. It seems to be a rebirth of spirituality happening. Now, Melissa, you have a wonderful tag here also in your media kit five ways to add more adventure to your life break from your routine and gain joy what <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> do you what do you have to say to our listeners about adding more adventure to their lives and breaking from their routine and gaining joy well i think one of the things that you don't have to go to war zone let's start <laughs> right? well i'm glad to hear that i was getting a little bit nervous as i packed my canvas bag oh my goodness <laughs> Yes, and of course, I don't want my son to go to a war zone. I know. So, yeah, so that's just a kind of disclaimer. One of the things I think is just taking a different way home from work or just changing one's routine, but doing it with a sense of awareness, like paying attention to something that new comes into your consciousness. It could be a thought. It could be uh, a person you meet. It's it, Whatever it is, so changing your routine. I'm a big person around synchronicities, you know, pay attention to an animal that just crosses a bird that flies by. I love, you know, the Google, you can just Google whatever, you know, power animal it is and see if that resonates. If it doesn't, no, you know, no problem. But it might be like, whoa, okay. So I'm big on paying attention to messages, especially from animals. And even in, in an urban environment, they're there if we're paying attention and let's see, that's only two or three. <laughs> that's quite all right. I totally get it. I was going to jump in and add to the idea of, you know, if you're used to pouring your tea with one hand, try it with the other hand. If you're used to brushing your teeth with one hand, try it with the other hand. Just shake it up a little bit and get those neural pathways doing a little more of a salsa than just getting into the same routine all the time. Yeah, and I think dance. I, I really think dance is great too, you know. And there's so many practices that one can do. Gurdjieff also had movement and dance as, as a way to kind of get those two sides of the brain kind of, you know, working together. But you can just put on music and, and dance. I think that that's another one, too, that's easy. And, and some people forget that it actually is, is a method. Totally agree. Couldn't agree more with that. Now, you also have some beautiful quotes from Carl Jung in your book. You, you in fact, uh, as you number the different parts of it, you quote Carl Jung at each turn. So, for example, in the very beginning, you say the opus consists of three parts, insight, endurance, and action. Are you working with your dreams at night? I do. It's funny, on this trip, we, you know, we're traveling in an RV, you know, and, <laughs> and the dream world has been so uh, complex and and almost on the edge of not being able to remember it. So I'm a big dream person. I think dreams bring a lot of messages, a lot of understanding. And of course, Carl Jung was, was amazing in recognizing dreams and archetypes and these kind of new myths. And, and I think that's where we do kind of make that connection to these deeper sources of wisdom that 
the culture doesn't really recognize, even though it's there in every way. Like my friend's really into this vampire zombie thing is the gothic, you know, projection of all our sins and horrors that we're doing around the world that we are processing in through through this kind of insatiable desire to watch dance vampires <laughs> and zombies. I kind of agree with her. I'm not a big fan of them myself, but, you know, I get it. But I think the dream world also is that place, whether it's, you know, something that's just complicated that's getting worked out or something really direct messaging or whatever, whatever comes out. And a lot of people don't remember their dreams. I mean, I know that that's a concern for some people. And I think sometimes just setting the intention around, okay, you know, having a journal next to your bed, they're just tools because I think dream work is, is amazing. I agree. I've been watching mine and they've been informing my life for a long time and I help others uh, read their dreams here in Stouffville. It's a part of the way I work. Yeah, I also work by Skype with people. That's a shameless moment of shilling right there in the middle of your program. <laughs> Call me crass. That's the way it is, folks. So, But I have great respect for that nightly experience, so much so that I really do believe everyone benefits by paying attention to your dreams and by beginning to research them a little bit, do some dream uh, reading around dreams and what they mean. Were you aware of dreams at any given point in your journey in Afghanistan? Was this something that always shaped your thinking in your day, or was this a new adventure later on? I think as a visual person, I was always quite aware of my dreams. I didn't know how to work them in the same way as I do now, but I think I, I had a very, I remember dreams. So I think there was that connection always. Yes, yes, that is. That sounds like it was. Now, there's another um, item in your kit, the joy of living on the edge. Three simple ways you can go for it. So would you mind, have I put you on the spot too much, or would you mind telling our listeners how three simple ways that they can go for it? Well, I think it's kind of similar to the adventure one, too. I mean, I think... I think pay attention to what you are drawn to. Like, what are you called to do? And oftentimes we think, you know, things should be in the flow. But my experience is that that when you get that calling or that desire, a lot of times it feels really uncomfortable. And it doesn't come from a place of ease and, and, oh, this is fine. It comes from like, oh, really? Like, ah. So I think, you know, pay attention to that again. and, And do it in small pieces. You don't have to maybe... It is to make a big trip, but you could start with a small one where you're just taking a day trip somewhere. Again, you know, break it down to something that looks or feels manageable. And I think that's that's really where joy comes from is is almost being on your edge, but not over your edge. And, <laughs> I like it very and, much. Just right. quickly, Melissa, if you would be so kind, what was drawing you to homeopathic path because now I understand you as you've said you're studying to be a homeopathic doctor what brought you to that well again I never thought of myself as being into medicine or being a homeopath or even alternative medicine so the second I've been I'm writing a trilogy of memoirs so the second one is done and it's called yearning for magic and it is about that journey of how I became a homeopath and what attracted me and I think becoming a mom I mean really that was the the kind of opening which anybody you know any of one out there who's had a child or in any capacity again that's sort of being on your edge I think 
we really pay attention to being a parent at any stage. Uh, my kid's 18, and I'm like, really? I have to go through this again, like hyper aware of what, you know, mm -hmm. this next stage in his life will be like. But mm -hmm. he, he doesn't really care that I'm that hyper attentive. But <laughs> I know it takes that kind of attention when these transitions are coming. So for me, homeopathy, it was really around the vaccination question. I had no big... Uh, belief system or anything around should I vaccinate or not vaccinate my kid. I just was open to the question. I was curious about it. Homeopathy has a very strong um, opinion about vaccinations, which is not to vaccinate. So that's how I learned about homeopathy and started to to kind of um, find it. And, and it started to make sense. I don't know if we have time, but there are some very funny stories in the second memoir of where I really didn't think homeopathy was real or believable. I just thought it was fascinating. And boy, did I find out how wrong I was or, I'm with that attitude. Yeah. So incredibly grateful that you have spent time with us today, Melissa. It's been a real treat for me. And I do so look forward to the second of your trilogy of memoirs. The first one called My Journey Through War and Peace, Explorations of a Young Filmmaker, Feminist, and Spiritual Seeker. And the second one called Yearning for Magic. Is that correct? That's correct. And the third one is Sacred Marriage. I'm about a third of the way through the writing process. Wow, so, boy, we've got yes. lots to look forward to. Did you want to give our readers, our listeners rather, a place where they can get your books any, any more than any other place they can get your books? Well, one of the things, if you go to my website, www.melissa-birch.com, I have a heroine's journey workbook, and it'll have all the details where you can order the book, and of course, Amazon has it, too. That is fabulous. Thank you so much for a wonderful interview, Melissa, and we wish you all the best. And you'll, would you come back again another time? Oh, that would be wonderful, Charlene. Thank you so much for the opportunity. <laughs> Take care. Bye for now. That's it. That's all for today's program. Thanks for joining us here at Soul Sciences. And thanks to Kevin McLeod for that lovely intro and extra music called Carefree. For more of my work, please go to www.soulsciences.net. And remember, take good care of each other.